Thank you, thank you all for coming, really from the bottom of my heart. Um, it's, it's an incredible experience to be here in Orange County and be, um, be uh, part of this amazing programming. We have nothing like this in New York, nor any place that I've traveled in the world, really. So, and Ari is my personal model for what one should do when one comes to a community and want to create intellectual and, well, spiritual community. Right, um, and I really, I, I, if I lived in Orange County, I would be one of his biggest supporters. But thanks to the, thanks to the big supporters um, for helping all of this to happen. And if you're not a member already, you should consider becoming one. Um, so it's 1970, and I'm just five years old, and I am sitting, or rather lying, on a couch, in an apartment on the Upper West Side, which serves as the office and studio of Raymond Smoliver, a great cantor in the reform movement, who is helping my father, coming from a Hasidic family, to practice as he did every year for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So my father left Hasidus and became a secular person, a normal person, as he would say, and some of you met him, actually, and an artist, and took me to Woodstock. And this is the year after Woodstock, of course. And he's still going to go back in September in our VW Bug, right? And as he approaches the borders of New Haven, Connecticut, he's going to take a black yarmulke out of the, out of the, out of the, and put a, you know, out of the glove compartment and put it on his head, right? So nobody should see. And he's going to go and he's going to be the Orthodox chazan of the Orthodox shul in New Haven, and people will come from the Reform and the conservative shuls to hear him daven. And I'm on the couch, and what I'm hearing is, hayom. <laughs> I hear that, I hear that, I still hear it in my memory. And that's like my first recollection of what Jewish music is, right? It's the Rosh Hashanah davening of Eastern European Ashkenazim. And for me, that exemplified really what Jewish music was. It wasn't Shoma Karlbach as it eventually was, or Debbie, Debbie Friedman, or right? None of that stuff, this traditional Nusach. And when Ari asked me to prepare something well, different. You've heard my biography. You know that I'm a person who works primarily in visual culture. I will confess to you that this is the first time that I've ever spoken to any audience, except the audience in my head, about Jewish music. And that I am incredibly underqualified, both 
musicologically <laughs> and historically to say anything about it. But here's the thing, I love it a lot. And I wanna share particularly what I love about it, okay? Now, so I'm begging your indulgence because I know you've had musicologists, Edward Sarusi, right? Uh, you've had people who really could give you the history of Jewish music. And that was the intention that I should do something on the history of Jewish music. But then I realized I have a kind of quirky take on Jewish music, what it is and what's important about it. And what I decided to do is in the short time that we have together, rather than survey everything, and a gentleman came up to me and told me he's learning to play sax, klezmer sax, and I said, oh man, I didn't do anything with klezmer, and I do like this area of klezmer that I love, and klezmer improvisation, I should have done something, right? I've picked a number of junctures in the history of Jewish music, both sort of historical, how would you say it, historical um, trajectories, and comparisons that I think that you'll find interesting. And so I'm, I'm begging your indulgence to, to try this experiment on you. And if you, and, and, and there's certainly many of you are more musically knowledgeable than I am. And, uh, and in any case, there's a fascination, you know, in, in Yiddishkeit, always with origins. And the problem is that while we know what we do musically, our musical sort of pretensions in Judaism go in two directions. One, we like to think, many of us, that whatever we, we are doing, they were doing already back on Mount Sinai, right? So, you know, oh, this is a very old tune. So I want to implode some of the myths of very old tunes. On the other hand, we actually have a very ancient musical notation system that goes with the text of the Bible that is opaque. Every community has a tradition about how to read those tropes, as they're called, those ta'amim, ta'amei hamikra, but every tradition has a different, uh, every community has a different tradition. So on the one hand, we're very sure that certain things that we sing, like, Shalom Aleichem Malachi HaShoreis, it sounds so old, it sounds so East European, it must go back a long time, right? That's ancient, right? On the other hand, we're not really even sure where the origins of these marks and dots in our chumashim are and how to interpret them. In fact, Ashkenazim no longer have a tradition of how to read the Tamim, the tropes for, say, the Book of Psalms, the book that was the most sung book, right? So one of the fascinating stops on my itinerary is with a woman named Suzanne Haig-Fatura, who is a French musicologist who wrote a book in the 80s called La Musique de la Bible Relevée, The Music of the Bible Revealed. And what she proceeded to do on the basis of comparisons with Assyrian and Sumerian and Greek was to put together, based on the musical notes that appear in the printed Humash, a series of reconstructions of biblical music. And I want to start with one of hers. This is the 150th Psalm, Praise God with the Lyre and the Harp, right? As she imagined it might have sounded in the temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
quite dramatic, I think you'll agree. Is it accurate? No one can say. And that's the view, right? That's the beautiful thing about it. Oh, oh I, don't mean, I don't know why it's looping, but okay. Um, we could have it as an undertone, right? Um, what's the impression you get in this music? There's drama, there's drive, right? Um, they're repeating monotonal uh, elements in it, right? It, it moves forward. In fact, as the culminating psalm of the 150 psalms, the last psalm, one sort of imagines that in the Temple of Jerusalem, used for ritual purposes, accompanied perhaps by the instruments mentioned in the psalm, it might very well have sounded this way, but we really can't say. Now, one of the fascinating things I find um, when I look at Jewish music, just as I look, when I look at art made for Jews, is that Jewish music, until a very late period in history, is indigenously Jewish. Jewish art, on the other hand, originates as a Jewish enterprise, and then it's eventually subcontracted. So by the Middle Ages, the people who are creating art are non-Jews very often creating art for Jews. And it's not until the 19th or 20th century that Jews come back and create art themselves. But music is really the inherent product of Jews, and every community has its variations. I want to play for you a group of selections, short selections, from the first chapter of the Book of Esther. Now, the trope, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the tamim, the, the musical notes for the reading of Esther, are very eccentric. And this leads to a greater degree of communal disharmony, let's say. This program is called Beautiful Harmonies, but there are beautiful disharmonies as well, in terms of lack of uniformity in how the Book of Esther is read. The way we read it conventionally in Ashkenaz, it can be read almost as a joke trope. Nobody would read a Torah trope as a joke trope. Right? That's Ashkenazic, right? But the Book of Esther is a trope that, that the, in the way that it's written, it almost has humor inherent in it. Ashkenaz. Hamalech mehod duviad kushe baveserim, umi amidina biami mahem kesheves, hamelech hashferosh au kisemahuso asher bishushan habira. Right? So there's almost, you know, there's humor in it. Um, not all of the conventions are humorous, but you can hear the diversity. The first here, um, Ashkenazic, this is recorded in Alsace in France, or Germany, <laughs> depending on when. Uh, this is in 1975. Right, so that's what I just sang for you. Um, an Italian version from Florence. What you need to know about Italian Jews and their music is that the Jews of Italy were the earliest diaspora Jewish community after the communities in Egypt, right? These people came with Titus's destruction of the Second Temple, B'nai Roma, very ancient community, and they are sort of an island of liturgical uh, traditions. 
However, the Italian Jews were supplemented by a variety of different uh, guests and eventually permanent residents. And so the Florence tradition of the Italian Jews is a Western Sephardic tradition. Here's the beginning of the Book of Esther. Right? Much more melodic, right? Much more of a song. Okay. Then there are the various Mizrahi communities, communities of Jews in the East who are ethnically Arab, right? So here is Algeria, 1966. <laughs> Enough, you Algerians, right? Okay, so those Algerians, you can't stop them once they get started. It's much more melismatic. However, what's very interesting is nobody's improvising. So if there's a melisma, right, that's the way that trope is being read. So the same trope is being interpreted in a, how would you say, a conventional song-like manner in Florence, is being interpreted in a melismatic, sort of Arabic, you know, either kawal or, or I, don't, I don't know what, what mode it is, scale in Algeria, okay? Jerusalem Sfardim. <laughs> What does that remind you of? The Florentine one, right? So Western Sephardic tradition, sing-song in Jerusalem. Kurdistan. Right, so I guess if you're in Kurdistan, you're, somebody's always chasing you. So you have to, right, you know, you have to, yeah, right? Now, now, what's interesting about that is you couldn't understand it even if you knew Hebrew. Let me play a little more. What's going on? It sounds like an auctioneer. It sounds like an auctioneer, but what's going on linguistically? It's being read one line in Hebrew and one line in Kurdish Aramaic. So both the Yemenites and the Kurds have this tradition, and up until 1978 or 9, the first time I was in Jerusalem, I went to a Yemenite synagogue, and when it came time to read the Torah, someone unrolled a leopard skin on the ground, and a young boy, 10 years old, stood and gave the Targum, the Aramaic translation for each line of the Torah reading. It was fascinating, right? Um, okay. Um, Another, uh, this, is, this is Mizrahi, Tunisia. So what is distinctive there? It's more sing-song, like the Western Sephardic. However, the pronunciation is a distinctively Arabized pronunciation. Wayyihi, bimi ahashverosh, right? Um, this is what you can hear uh, in that, okay? Uh, and then finally, uh, Yemenite. Oh, sorry, sorry. 
right? Again, very Arabized and very sing-song. So there are commonalities between these ethnic variations and there are differences. But what you have to realize, in each of these cases, we are hearing notes being sung. The notes are down there in the chumash to be sung, and they're sung in different ways. And probably we could learn something about the sensibilities of each of these communities in terms of how they interpret these notes. What about situations in which there are no notes? For instance, blessings, right? The notes aren't written down in blessings. And hymns. Well, a good place to look for both blessings and hymns is in the Hanukkah liturgy. So here we have some examples of the Hanukkah liturgy. First of all, the candlelighting blessings, an absolutely conventional Ashkenazi rendition, um, beautifully rendered actually by the Zamir Chorale. particular variation, if you caught it, v'hadlik ner Chanukah, not shel Chanukah, and not ner Chanukah. There's three variations in terms of how um, the blessing is recited. One is v'hadlik ner Chanukah, which is a Sephardic um, and Kabbalistic way, because the, the number of uh, syllables and letters is very specific. Um, one is shel Chanukah, which is conventional Ashkenazic, and then shel Chanukah is the third variation, which is found among Ashkenazim. That's the way my own family does it. <laughs> Cantorial Ashkenazi. <laughs> So what's the difference between the first, right, which is something close to what we sing, and this cantorial version, right? The cantorial version is a composed piece. And there was a tradition, particularly in Western Europe, in Ashkenaz, and, and eventually in Eastern Europe, um, of composing pieces that were in the mode of the way the people conventionally sang blessings. So this is, you know, you could fit these two sort of nestled one into the other, but the second is an art song version, and the first is a singable version. <laughs> Western Sephardic, very straight. 
ברוך אתה השם אלוהינו ומלך העולם אשר קידשנו ובשפותיו וסבלנו להדליק נר חנוכה Yemen, Iraq, right? It's an Arabic miftah, um, an Arabic accent, and it's actually from Algeria, from Oran. So you're beginning to understand not only that the accent, but the degree of melismatic um, uh, performance, right, is, is, will help you to determine where these things come from. What about hymns? Hymns are interesting because all we have are the words. And there are family conventions for singing them and communal conventions for singing them. You're familiar with this. It sounds very much like a typical Protestant hymn. And in fact, it made its way into the Protestant hymnography, and we'll talk about a couple of pieces that made their way, ways back and forth. What's interesting about hymns and prayers that don't have conventional forms is that they, like I use this comparison, talking about art earlier today, like tofu, they take on the flavor of the culture in which they live, which is why, Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, right? You know, the 16th century version in Ashkenaz of Birkat HaMazon, the blessing after meals, sounds like a series of German dance tunes. You know why it sounds like a series of German dance tunes? Because it is a series of German dance tunes, right? And in a way, it's just, to me, it's so wonderful that this is a wonderful testimony to the fact that Jews live lives very much in their environment. And um, in my own family, we take the liberty uh, just about every week of, uh, of singing Shir HaMalot to something appropriate, but uh, not necessarily Jewish, right? So um, when it's spring, we sing Bach's peasant cantata. Shir HaMalot b'shuv ha'ashem shiva tzihiyon ha'yinu kechomim Ashim alesho ha'opinu u'shonenu ri'ina Ashimru v'agoyim higdil ha'shem la'asoti melech Higdil ha'shem la'asoti manu ha'yinu semechim Right? You know. So, right? And then we... So we do all kinds, you know, my, my son, um, my eight-year-old, for his talent show, he decided to sing, um, what did he sing? He sang um, Thomas Augustine Arne's Where the Bee Sucks um, from The Tempest. Where the bee sucks, there suck I, in a cow's lips, bell I lie, there I couch, when owls do cry, when owls do cry. So we sang that Shabbos, we sang, Shir HaMalaz B'Shuvah Hashem, Et Shivatzion Hayinu Kechomim, Az Yemales Chokpi, right? Now, if you're a little bit scornful of people singing Adon Olam to like Beyonce tunes, you know, this may upset you, but in fact it's part of the Jewish tradition, right? You know the famous, or maybe you don't, the famous story of the Kalavar Rebbe, right? The Kalavar Rebbe, was a Hungarian Rebbe, was out in the fields one day, and he heard a peasant boy singing a tune. He said, ah, this is a Shenanigan, this is a nice tune. So he went to the peasant boy, he said, look, I'll buy that tune from you. This is an early instance of intellectual property rights guarantee. <laughs> I'll buy that tune for you. And he bought the tune fair and square. 
And then he used it as an important nigun in, 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 in Hasidus. Um, okay, another mausur. What community? Anybody? Loud, loud, say. Ashkenaz, which Ashkenazic community? Moisur, Moiz, anybody? Anybody have Hungarian grandparents? All right, 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 okay, that's Hungarian. So that's, that's uh, Hungarian. Very precise, yet pronunciation of the taf, the saf as a taf, right? What does that sound like to you? It's, excuse me? It's not Sephardic. Uh, which Ashkenazic? German, Frankfurt am Main. Right? In New York, we have a large community, the Breuer's community up in you know, Washington Heights, and you can hear, excuse me? Totally Israeli. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, to you, maybe, but you know. <laughs> I don't know what it means to sound Israeli, actually. It's, uh, I don't know if there is one Israeli thing. Um, okay, an interesting instance of the boomerang, what I call the boomerang effect, right? You put a tune out there, it gets lost, you don't know what happened to it, right? And then somebody else catches it and throws it back to you, okay? So, Benedetto Marcello, Christian composer, Italian composer of the, um, of the, the 1680s to 1730s, um, story goes, uh, he, has a, he has a series of psalms, and uh, the psalms are set to various settings. And part of these 68 psalms that he sets to settings are set to what he says are Italian Jewish melodies. And he lived in Venice. He was walking around in the area of the ghetto. And he heard the tune from Mausur. And he wrote it down as one of his psalm tunes. That tune was lost to the Jewish community of Venice. But through the popularity of Marcello's psalm tunes, about a hundred years later, they recovered it, and that's the tune that they sing today.
So I was staying in Venice in an apartment, one of the tall buildings in the ghetto. The ghetto is, has the highest buildings in Venice because the Jews had to build up. And outside the window of the apartment, there's a ring. And that ring is where you hang the Hanukkiah, right, over the uh, fundamenta del de, de ghetto, over the, um, the, uh, the, the side of the, of the Riva del ghetto, the, um, the, uh, the canal that passes. And you can imagine people going non-Jews like Marcello, right, in gondolas around the ghetto and seeing the Hanukkiot out on the sides of all the buildings and hearing the music, very beautiful. The Hasidic community tends for particular holidays, the Hasidic communities, different communities, have different um, uh, liturgical and musical traditions. Some of Hasidic music is very much inward turned and very meditative, but there's a certain um, stratum of Hasidic music that's very martial, that's very grand, that sort of evokes the marching bands of empire, right, uh, during the years when Hasidism was in formation. And this is because um, Hasidim of different denominations viewed themselves at different times as inward turning and meditative, but sometimes as fighting the wars of the Lord, right? Uh, and Hanukkah is one of those times. Hanukkah, of course, is a celebration of a, of a spiritual but also a military victory. And in Hasidus, the military victory is troped, is understood as a spiritual victory. So Hasidic Hanukkah, uh, Mausur tunes, tend to be rather martial. Okay, right. Um, that's a general Hasidic tune, probably comes from Bavov, not sure. Um, this is Mujitz. Now, Mujitz is an interesting Hasidus. The Rebbes of Mujitz were great musicians. They composed whole operas, basically, things called operas, in which there, there are millions of tone shifts and fascinating stuff. And um, the most interesting figure in Mujitz to this day, he should live long, is a fellow named Bensian Schenker. Bensian Schenker is a sort of Mujitz hanger on. Various Hasidic groups have people who are sort of, you know, the Hasidim. And then there are people who are sort of from the Hasidic roots, and, but they don't necessarily dress the dress or walk the walk all their lives. And Ben Sian Schenker is a, a guy, he's a Majitzer Hasid, but he's clean shaven. You know, he wears a little hat, he never wears a strimal. And he's a man now of, in his late 80s, but I remember being at a Majitz wedding once. Very beautiful music experience, because it was Majitz and Bostoner Hasidim, both very musical dynasties. And I remember that, that there was a sort of rustle in the corner of the room. And then there's people like, mm -hmm. and I see there's this little man gets up, it's Ben Sion Shanker, and these Hasidim, a forest of Streimlach, you know, and white socks are gathering around him, and they start to sing, and they start to harmonize, and it's exquisite. And he composed so much music. The Rebbe Zemudges composed music, but Ben Sion Shanker himself, in our lifetime, composed songs like this, 
מזמול דוד, השם ראי לו אכזר, והנה עוז דשא יער בצני, המנוח שנעלני. You thought that came from Sinai, that came from this little old man. Or, wait, this is even better. Ask your grandparents, well, if they're alive, right? If they sang that, they didn't sing that. That was composed in the, in the, in the 50s by Ben Sian Schenker, right? So here's Ben Sian Schenker's Mausur. <laughs> beautiful and it's a waltz right it's both military and a waltz so you have that Hasidic sensibility now not all communities sing Mautzur the Alsatian community for instance sings a hymn that was that's a medieval hymn called Shnei Zesim has anybody ever heard Shnei Zesim Shnei Zesim Nichresim Beganau Yaziru Sounds like Mausur, Mausur Yeshu, right? But, um, 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 sing different hymns. The Mizrahi communities in the East um, make do with psalms. So, Mizmor Shir Chanukah Sabayis Le David. Mizmor Shir Chanukah Sabayis Le David Arul Chavumai Kidil Lidani Veinu Zimah Zahoi Vaili Adumai Eluai That is from Oran in Algeria. Now, I'm not going to play that much con contemporary stuff because I get to call the shots and decide what I want to talk to you about. However, however, um, it's important to note that there is a psalm that is traditionally in the Sephardic prayer book inscribed in the shape of the menorah. And it's a Kabbalistic Indian, a Kabbalistic idea to, to read this psalm every morning, to focus one's attention in prayer in the form of the menorah. And it's La Menatzeach, and this is sung by Sephardic Jews also on, uh, on Hanukkah, on Mizrahi Jews. And I want to play a contemporary um, uh, uh, version by a fellow named Josh Lauferf uh, of Ann Arbor, Mi Michigan, and currently of um, uh, uh, Israel. You can follow along. Here. Amenazea, Vidigino, Mismoshi. 
One, biblical tropes, which are musical notes that are written down and interpreted differently in different communities. Secondly, blessings and hymns, which are more freestyle and attempt to evoke particular kinds of spirit in their articulation. What about a particular hymn that has many variations and each, in each variation can be read, let's say, a different sensibility about what that hymn means. So if I asked each of you, what does Shabbos mean to you? And what does entering Shabbos mean to you? And what is your relationship to this abstract figure called Shabbos Hamalka, the Sabbath queen? You might have different feelings. Is she a spouse? Is she a bride? Is she a mother? Right? Is she you? Right? Is she God? Is she, what is she? Right? How, what, what's her relationship? Right? And so when we think about the hymn, the Chadodi, there are almost infinite variations. And when we hear the variations, I want you to think about the kind of relationship they evoke. Because you have to realize that Kabbalat Shabbat and the Chadodi are late innovations. Right? They, 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 they um, arise in the 16th century in Sfat. They weren't in the liturgy previously. It, they were radical additions, the idea that you could add a complete prayer service, right? It was a sort of very radical enterprise. And also this hymn, L'chad Come My Beloved and Greet the Sabbath, is so intimate and so erotic, right? Um, that it was, it, it was a very, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that it, squeeze through. You know, they say that when scripture was being uh, put together and the rabbis needed a portable, user-friendly uh, corpus of scripture to take with them into exile since the temple had been destroyed in the year 90, they were sitting around in Yavne in the north of Israel and trying to decide what would go in the Bible. Obviously, the Chumash, the five books of Moses should go in. Obviously, the prophets. Then they came to some kind of iffy books like Ecclesiastes, Right, which says that life sucks and then you die and there's nothing, you, you know, I mean, it's like, it's terrible, awful, 
right? And that's squeezed by because of its last line, which some people say was tacked into place at that moment, right? That's heretical to say that, which, is, which says, look, the sum of the matter, when everything's said and done, just revere God and, and observe the commandments, because that's, that's really what it's all about, right? And then the other book, of course, was the Song of Songs, right? Which was so erotic that, that the rabbis wanted to keep it out of the canon until Rabbi Akiva got up and he said, you know, folks, the whole world is not worth the day that the Song of Songs was given to Israel. Because if everything that you've now canonized in scripture is holy, then the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And I think it was on that kind of merit that Lechadodi, come my beloved, greet the bride and talk about union between Israel and the Sabbath and the Sabbath and God and Israel and God on the Sabbath squeak through. And Echadadi um, has, of course, had many melodies in its long history. Um, we're all familiar with the innovations uh, of two great artists of the, of the 20th and 21st century, uh, Shlomo Karbach and Debbie Friedman, both, both of blessed memory. Here's Karbach's Echadadi. What's the mode of this? It's a waltz. Right? So it's a waltz, and it's very contagious. And it's, you know, a waltz is an intimate dance, and yet it's a very choreographed dance. And it's so it implies um, really, really, Karl Bach's waltz, to me, metaphorically implies the two poles of the Sabbath. The two poles of the Sabbath are to remember, to recall the Sabbath, you know, and what does it mean to, re like, you know, my wife is on the other coast now, right? So... Every day I'm thinking, hello, Aggie, you know, I'm remembering her, I'm keeping her in my heart. She's got, I'm dancing with her in my heart, right? Isn't that sweet? Yeah. <laughs> still, still, still after all these years. Um, so I'm dancing with her in my heart, right? And then the other is that every relationship has rules, shamor, right? And so a waltz is this dance where you hold somebody close but you have to watch your footwork. It's terrible to dance with somebody who doesn't know how to do, you know, do a waltz, right? Who's going to lead, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so the implications are there. Here's a very, very beautiful Breslov, the um, Chadadi. Uh, 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 and you know, this community is privileged and blessed to have an actual Breslov or Chassid in its midst. Um, and uh, you, should, you should know that there are Breslov or Hasidim, of course, they get together as a group, but they, they also tend to be like, you know, uh, independent agents. And sometimes they, like good angels, they show up in communities and bless them. Uh, so this is, a, this is a Breslover tune dedicated to Lee and Laura. <laughs> So a waltz, but listen to the difference.
but not not alone Michael and um, Israel Edelson. You'll hear in a second. It's a very, it's a different kind of waltz. But you know what? Going out to greet the Sabbath can also be an activity you do on community, in community, right? It can be almost a sort of a military salute and leave it to the Majitzer Hasidim, again, Bensi and Schenker, to give you a, a sort of more military, the Chadudi. Oh, no, no, this is not the one. Sorry, ah, sorry. That's Hasidic. It's a Hasidic march. And what you should know about Hasidim is the way they sing the Chadodi is they don't sing it. They sing the nigun and then they mumble the verse afterwards, right? So it's a, it's a sort of, so, so in a way, it's one of these situations where you get to sort of experience the spiritual value of the music without having to worry about the words. It's a compromise, right? It's hard to do that with liturgy because in liturgy, each word has to be articulated. But this way, you can have the experience of a fast march or a slow march or a waltz, or, right? And you can also, right, um, say the words, but the words become less important. Now, there are uh, more organized Jewish communities, like the Western Svardim, who we met the other day. Their Lechadodi is very ordered. It's martial, but it's lower key than the Hasidic ones. Okay. We probably, many of us growing up, grew up in conservative congregations in which everybody sang, Shabbat 
That is, was the conventional American of my youth before Karl Bach and, and, and everybody else. It is, in fact, as many of these communal singing tunes in conservative and orthodox congregations were, an abject butchering right, of the really great orthodox composers of Vienna in the 19th century. So when you hear the Lechadodi that I just sang, sung the way it's supposed to be sung by a choir, in fact, the Vienna Boys Choir, along with, with, uh, oh, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not, that's some Turkish something. Um, the Vienna, the Vienna, the Vienna Boys Choir with um, Cantor Barzilai in Vienna, you understand, you listen to it and you'll say, oh, this sounds like German reform, but it isn't. It's German neo-orthodoxy, which responded to reform. Salzer and Lewandowski were composers who composed for the traditional synagogue in Vienna. Here's a Chadodi as it should be sung. Note the traditional pronunciations. And what you sang is actually the choral response. Vienna Boys Choir. Right, so you see the way things degenerate. I'm going to give you a few plum examples of degeneration as we go on. Okay, now the Chadodi is interesting because the poem itself changes its mood. It goes from sort of pastoral to plaintive to aspirational to unified. It's a very beautiful poem, and it has many moods in it. And what happens in Hasidus is that very often Hasidim will change the tune, not only once, as sometimes we do, but maybe even twice. And one of my favorite Hasidic pieces, and if we have enough time, I'm going to teach it to you so you can sing it at CBI. We're going to do it on the piano, and I'm going to teach it to you if we have enough time at the end and people are willing, um, is the Babov Mikdash Melech. This is, I think, one of the most beautiful Hasidic tunes with apologies to Breslavers and Mujitsers the world over. Um, it is really um, uh, a lullaby to the, to the city of Jerusalem, which is overturned and in a heap of ashes. And it says, Mikdash, Melech, Ir Melucha, the holy city, the, 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 um, the, the royal city, the shrine of the king, Kumi, get up, get out of the overturned, you know, ashes of your existence, right? And it's almost a lullaby to the holy city. And this is the Bubba version. This is from the 50s. It's hard to get these recordings. And, you know, uh, they are a little bit kitschified because it's, you know, like, like it's like, the, you know, the, the, the thousand violins, but okay. Oh, <laughs> 
is that very often um, Jewish music can sound like the music around it. And I actually have a theory about Western Sephardic music. Western Sephardic music, um, I believe, the music of the communities of Amsterdam, London, and New York, the Western Sephardim were engaged actively in the colonial enterprise and in trade outside of um, where they lived, um, and particularly in, in the colonies. And my theory is that um, their music sounds more, in the 18th century when it begins to be composed, sounds more like American colonial music, let's say, than what was going on in Georgian England at that time. And I'm going to explore that with you in a couple of seconds. But let me give you a few more examples of the way a conventional text is interpreted, right? So, you know, at the end of benching, at the end of Birkat Hamazon, right, we, um, we sing the, the, the supplement, Nar Haiti, right? Um, so how does that go? How do we sing it? Anybody? Give me an example. Okay, that's one version. Okay, another version. Um, another version is like this. Right. Okay. And then there's the famous version of Dveikus, which is an a cappella uh, yeshivish group. Have you heard this one? Maybe listen. It's one of these yeshiva boy groups which have their own charm, but their own kitschiness as well. You can do these harmonies at your table, actually. They come out nicely. harmonized, okay? So these are, again, this is a, um, a piyut, it is a, uh, it is a hymn, and it's subject to various different tunes, and our tunes are, the Ashkenazic tunes are not particularly beholden to anything in particular. 
but the Sephardi tunes are. So if you heard the, and actually, uh, Western Sephardim add a supplemental, um, uh, uh, a supplement, uh, which is this, doesn't appear in the Ashkenazi uh, benching, but uh, they add Masha Achalnu. Uh, and they they will they they use narhayiti also and parts uh, to the same tune. Um, this is uh, Chazan Cardozo of Sharit Israel, Western Sephardic congregation. Some of you visited in New York. Uh, he was the Chazan there in the 50s and 60s. And this is his singing the Masha Achalnu, which begins with narhayiti. But we're cutting to this part. <laughs> Right, okay. Now that can be harmonized, and this is, um, you recognize one bad voice in this bad harmony. A bunch of uh, Western Sephardic um, friends of mine in London and me harmonizing okay, okay. this. We're ready. Well, there's the bass and there's the okay. Just, just start. Well, start. Hope he didn't know that. I don't know a song from that, though. Okay. No, it's just start from now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Start from now. Now it is, man. Well, you should close that bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, start again. Take three. <laughs> was in particularly good voice, but if you listen to that, you realize that it's Georgian from the period of King George III, remember him, the American Revolution, it's Georgian music, and as such, it is cognate with things like this. We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, even the harmonies. Hope I didn't offend anybody, but that's so, so, right? So again, the tofu effect. Now, let's take that Western Sephardic London tune and bring it to Italy and see what the Florentine Jews do with the same tune. No. an Italian folk song, right? Okay. 
Here's the question. With all of this variety and all of this multivalency, many meaningfulness, and all of this possibility for interpretation, because the way one sings something as a light folk song or as a sort of heavy meditative right, hymn right, can be determinative about how one understands the words, something that's very important is, I guess, what we would call authenticity. Now here's the question, here's the question. How do you sing Shalom Aleichem? Shalom Aleichem, Malachi HaShaharet, Malachi HaYom. So beautiful, so Eastern European, so old. Wrong. Shalom Aleichem in this iteration was composed by the Jewish operatic composer Israel Goldfarb as he walked past the statue of Alma Mater on one Friday night in 1925. Okay? Now, how were people singing Shalom Aleichem if not that way? Right? Somebody told me a wonderful story recently about somebody, you know, claiming that this tune had great antiquity and how could they change the, you change the tune, right? Right? How was this tune sung in my great-grandfather's generation? Like this. Right, in fact, I don't remember my own grandfather singing it much on one side. But on the other side, we had a tune. It was an old tune. It wasn't Shalom Aleichem. It was Shalom Aleichem. Maloche Hashures, Maloche Hashulim, Maloche Yen, Mihimelech, Maloche Hamlochim, Hakawadawish Borihi, Moachem Shulem, Maloche Hashulem, Maloche Hashures, Malache 
מלכי המלוכים הקודש, הקודש בורכי. And I just love that. You know, מי מלך. You take the word מלך, right? King. And you turn it into, just like you take the word rabbi, and you turn it into Rebbe, right? So you take מלך, and you turn it into מלך, right? So that's the way we say it, right? So even among Ashkenazi Jews in America, there are, there are variations, okay. A couple of fascinating detours, and I won't keep you that much longer. I know it's hard. It's like visual material. You can look at stuff, but this stuff you have to listen to. Who knows how to listen? It all sounds the same to me. A bunch of people wailing. I don't know. Okay, so, um, okay. You know, I don't know, I don't know how you people do it in your congregations, but in my world, there's a specific version of Yigdal that's sung on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, okay? It goes like this. So there's many ways to sing Yigdal, right? Um, maybe you sing it the stand, standard Ashkenazic way, the Leone way, which I'll talk about in a second. Yigdal Elohim Chai V'yishtabach Nimsav Right. But the, the Ashkenazic way for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Tell me if you've heard this. I'm just curious, just because I don't know. I live in my own little world. You know, you know where I have Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur services? Yes, in my living room. So I really, I don't know what the world is like, and I do the whole thing. So, so, um, so okay, so this is the way, right? Okay, traditional Ashkenaz, right? Um, יגדל אלוקים חי וישתבח נמסה והנסר מציאוסו Some people recognize it. אחד ואין יחיד כייחודו נעלם וגם אין סוף לאחדוסו אינו דמוס הגוף Maybe it's coming back to you. Maybe they do that. ואינו הגוף Well, that's, that's, very, that's like Ashkenaz all the way. Right? Here it is. Hold it is. Here it is. One second. Ashkenaz all, all the way. This is Cantor Heinowitz in Yeshurun in Yerushalayim. Right? He does it a little differently. Very Ashkenazi, very Eastern European. Except it isn't. Because... Anybody know what this is? Cuando el rey Nimrod. El rey Nimrod, a Ladino Roman Sarah. Fadal Elohim Chai. Now when I okay enough lady enough okay well stop it you like the Turks okay so when you know when I asked Cantor I I wrote at the at the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in New York who knows everything there is to know about these things is there a correlation he said no okay 
Now, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. So, we talked about Yigdal, okay? We talked about Yigdal. On the left, the composer of Yigdal, the composer of Yigdal, Meyer Leon, born around 1715 in Germany, died in 1797 in Kingston, Jamaica. Better known by his stage name, Michael Leone, he was the chazan of the Great Synagogue in London and achieved fame as a tenor singer in London and Dublin and as the mentor of the famous singer John Braham. Um, and what was very interesting is that there was a Methodist minister named Thomas Olivers who heard about Leone, here he is performing in an opera, Thomas Olivers is on the right, he heard about Leone and came to hear him at the Great Synagogue. And he was so impressed by Leone's moving rendition of the hymn Yigdal that he determined to write words for a church hymn using the melody. And the result was this, the church hymn, The God of Abraham Prays. Standard Protestant So we've gone from Sephard to, to from Sephard to Ashkenaz, and from Jewish to Protestant. And in some ways, I'd like to sort of conclude by coming full circle. Remember, we began with the great Hallelujah of the music of the Bible revealed. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, experienced phenomena of songs being transferred from one context to another. And very often, it's a secular melody that becomes a religious song. In a way, I know of no more religious secular melody than Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah. And what's interesting is that it's making its way, it probably has made its way into congregations, even Orthodox congregations in America. And so, in tribute to Leonard Cohen, I'd like to play Hallelujah and show how it's been fit into the liturgy. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Listen Lord. Listen to the lyrics, right? But you don't really care for music, do you? Who does? Who doesn't care? The girl he's talking to? The woman he's talking to? Or God? Right? It's a religious hymn.
Of course, when I proposed incorporating Hallelujah into the traditional liturgy in Orthodox synagogues, I mean Leonard Cohn's version, not his tune, the words, which I think are profound. Nobody's really into that, but fortunately I run my own minion in my living room so I could do that. Um, but you, you hear a lot of this nowadays. The Israelites in the Bible sing nine songs, nine songs. And the tenth song is the song yet to come, the song of redemption. And Rabbi Nachman talked about that song and spoke about the fact that that song was inherent in every blade of grass. Every blade of grass had its own song. And when all the songs were joined together, that would be the great song and the great hymn of the universe. I don't know anything about music, but I know what I like. And I tried to share with that, that with you tonight. I hope it was um, a profitable experience for you. And actually, my intention in doing it was to model the way we can think about music, even if we're not musicologists. So I hope it was a good experience for you. I bless you and me and all of us that will be able to continue to be together on occasions of learning. This is an amazing context. It's such a thrill for me to see so many people. Most of you, you know, when Ari asked, had you heard me before? Most of you haven't heard me before, and many of you probably won't want to hear me again. But, but the, the fact is, you came, you came not because it was a particularly sexy topic. I mean, Jewish music, right? It's not, right? It's not exactly like current events or Israel or the Holocaust or American Jews, right? Or Trump, right? Um, you didn't, right? You didn't, right? And you didn't come because you knew the person who was speaking, but you came because you knew that this was a place where you could form intellectual and Jewish community. And I bless all of you that you'll be able to continue with that. And I'm happy to address any questions that you have. And if you even want to learn the Bab of Migdash Melech, we can try to do that together. So thank you very much. Okay. Um, questions, if you have a question, stand up and, and say your name um, so I know who I'm addressing and, and ask the question loudly. Yes? It was brave, if anything, that's all I can say. Crutch, crutch, right? And and during that interview, I heard 
remember that there is a word for what that cantorial trill and everything uh -huh. is in the cry. And I was right. driving and couldn't write it down. Can you, do you know what uh, I always called it crashed, crash, but, but, but it's melismatic. I mean, that's the term. Um, you mean ranging up the, and down the Phrygian scale in that way, right. right? yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's interesting because, for instance, the Western Sephardim have none of that. There's no, no fetching. There's no crutching, right? Um, that is, okay, so you have to understand that that came into, I don't know how Jewish, thank you, how Jewish, excellent question, how Jewish music sounded in the Middle Ages. I have some musical notations that I can reconstruct, but I don't know how it was performed. Right? But I know that in the 19th century in particular, in a time when synagogues were being built in the Moorish style, the quasi-Islamic style, to distinguish themselves from the Gothic of churches, cantorial music begins to be more melismatic. And it's always been on a minor Phrygian scale, but it takes up this sort of you know, Eastern-sounding um, uh, uh, um, uh, variable pitch. And it might be an Orientalization. I think that's probably the, the origin of that, although musicologists will know more than I possibly can know. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so, okay, I say, I say one, two, three, four, five. Go ahead. Norm Rose. You are Norm, okay. Um, yes. You started off the lecture talking about traditional Jewish music. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought I knew what you were talking about until I heard your lecture. Mm. Um, this one that I thought was traditional was written in 1950, and the other one was right. more right. modern. And, right. Uh, what do you mean by traditional music? Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, the only traditional music we really have are the um, are the conventional tropes for Torah, Haftarah, and Megillah reading. So that's you know. On the other hand, on the other hand. There are tunes, in fact, there are tunes in the cantorial repertoire that are called Messinai tunes. Messinai tunes, that is, that go back to Mount Sinai. Do they go back to Mount Sinai? I don't think so. But I think that they probably are very old. So there are, um, there are tunes that can be, and, and, and modes that can be identified as being quite ancient. Particular songs, right, um, or hymn versions are generally picked up from the surrounding culture. Some of them survive from quite early, right? I mean, I think probably, you know, Haggadah is a late addition to the, um, to the, to the Haggadah. It's a, it's a 15th century edition of the Haggadah. But the tune, Haggadah, Haggadah, right? You know, um, is so simple and so, um, so really could easily be a 15th century tune, right? So you'd have to go on a tune by tune basis. Now, the fact is that a constructed version of Kony Dre, right, is 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 going to be inevitably a um, uh, you know a composition, but some variety of nusach. Now you do. Right? But they're all within a parameter. So I would say the parameter is traditional and the performance will vary. But, you know, I'm sorry to say, Shalom Aleichem is written in 1925. Okay, who do we have next? Yes, Chaya. Um, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. 
Oh, I'm sorry. So, and then you third. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, I'm a of CDI. Hi. Very frequent contact with immediate uh, conversions. We have tremendous numbers going on. We're very correct. We have a big communication. And to repeat the question. I will. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I understand. Okay. I understand. Okay. So, so the question, the question is this: among, yes, among converts, among converts of whom there are many and strong group, um, the the convention, the way they've been taught generally, is in Sephardic Hebrew, right? And Sephardic Nusach and Sephardic, right? So the question is, what or the statement is, what's going to be the fate of the Ashkenazic variety? of this kind of liturgy. It's an interesting question. It's a good question. We'll see. The complexion of any community changes over the years, of course. Next question, Chaya. So getting back to the 1920-whatever, Shalom Aleichem and other things like that that we mm -hmm. think are much older than they are, so how did they disseminate so fast? Right. How did the um, 1925 Shalom Aleichem disseminate so fast? Well, if the alternative is somebody mumbling Shalom Aleichem, you know, some, your, your, your kids hear it and bring it home. And I think that, um, you know, even before there was the interwebs, um, there was a tendency among young people, right, to, 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 to bring these things and spread them from family to family and table to table. But it is remarkable how those things not only spread, but they became bedrocks of our liturgical tradition. Yes. Uh, next question in the back. Yes. Stand up, please. Hi, my name is Myra Duncan. Hi, Myra. It's my first time here tonight, and um, I, I, it's just wonderful. The mountains invited me, and I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, I'm you're so sweet. And I play violin and piano, and I would like to know the name of the waltz that was on the piano that was so beautiful. That is from, it's, it's a Breslov uh, recording called Meditations of the Heart by Alone M Michelle. If you write me an email at this email address, okay. I will send you the information. I'll send you a playlist, uh, everybody, if you want, you know, with the, with the titles of the pieces. Right. that surround it and how they do their own prayers. You feel it in, in the way they sing it. Yes, for sure. And I have many Christians tell me that they enjoy so much listening to a good cantor. Right. And obviously, many cantors enjoy listening to Christian liturgy because, you know, it works both ways. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Um, Ari, are you next? Did you have a question? We're running out of time. We're all running out of time. Life is short. Yes. Rabbi Spitz. So do we know to what degree Gregorian chants were rooted in the melodies of the temple? So there's a, there's a theory that Gregorian chants were rooted in the melodies of the temple. Unfortunately, we don't know what the melodies of the temple were, right? So that's the problem. However, however, there are Sephardic melismatic playing chants that relate very closely to Gregorian chants. So Joel Cohen um, did a recording um, you know Joel Cohen? Yes, you do? So did he, he did a recording um, of, uh, of uh, comparative context, and I can send those to you if you like, Linda. Yes? Uh, the last question. Last question. Then you get to your music. Absolutely last. Oh, we're going to do the music? Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Let me teach something? Okay. Hartley. Uh, his last lecture was a very optimistic uh, prediction about the survival of Judaism, notwithstanding um, the reports that come out uh, yeah. and, and intermarriage and all of this. I agree. But do you do you see that the the works of people like Debbie and and the modern um, composers uh, who turn old Jewish songs into songs that may be more relatable to the next generation or the generations to follow? Make play a key role in uh, reinvigorating the alienated. Yes, um, I do, and I think that's the way it's, it's a good point. That's the way it's always been done. But those things will change also. They'll become ingrained and then they'll be corrupted. You know, I can't tell you, I, I, I spent a lot of time with Shlomo Karbach, you know, talking to him, listening to him, dominating with him. Um, the way people sing Karbach tunes now it would drive him crazy. You know, Shlomo would say, you'd sing, Ms. Morita. He'd say, no, 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 let's stop. He'd stop the davening. He'd say, you know, if I call up somebody and I dial 543-2797 and his number is 543-2796, I'm not going to get the person, right? <laughs> so sing the right notes, right? <laughs> Very important. Okay, um, there's Sidurim over there. If you don't know the words to Migdash Melech from Lechadodi, um, you can find them in the Sidur. Um, uh, and let's try to learn this. This is the Babov Mikdash Melech. The Babov Mikdash Melech. So do you know the words? Mikdash Melech Ir Melucha Kumi Tsi Mitocha Hafecha. It's on page 262. I'll sing it once. Mikdash Melech Ir Mikdash Melech Melucho Kumitzi Kumitzi Okay, let's try that. Again. Oh, 
See you. 